Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts uh, how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I am a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So our topic today is, should I hire a business development coach? And I've picked this topic because, um, as most of you know, I'm I'm a shareholder inside uh, an accounting firm. And one of the heart, one of the, the struggles that almost every accounting firm faces is how do we uh, motivate people to develop business? How do we train people to develop business? Because at the end of the day, in, in the 21st century economy, it's all well and good to be a great technician. But if all you have in a firm is technicians, it's like trying to win a baseball game with great pitching only. and You, you, you wind up uh, having zero to zero and you can't win that way. So you've got to have people and a culture that drives the ability to generate revenue. And the accounting industry in particular is not one that is necessarily known for its outgoing gregarious nature. And so that's a particular uh, area that, that, that we focus on. And, and, you know, for me as a leader of, of a valuation and strategic advisory practice, you know, at least 70% of what I do uh, has something to do with business development. And I can tell you that the things on the mind of our partners all the time is how do we, how, how do we get people excited and not just excited, but also trained to generate revenue? Because it's not fair to send a bunch of kids out there or sometimes not kids say, you know, go get us some business, go get them. You know, that, that's not going to produce an outcome except for the occasional outlier. And there needs to be a, a, an important support system for that. And, and, and I say this as not somebody to whom sales necessarily comes naturally. When I started my career in investment banking, I was the quant guy. I was the guy they locked into a room and shoved in front of a spreadsheet and left him with the textbooks and just made sure he never, ever got in front of a client because, um, that that was my role. And we had other people that were much more comfortable than I. And then over a number of years working with coaches, including Rod for a time, uh, I've managed to become slightly below average, which doesn't sound a lot, except when you, when you understand the disaster I was when I started, it actually is quite a long way. And joining us today by phone is, uh, is Rod Burkert, who is, you know, I think the best in the business when it comes to this kind of topic in the business valuation arena. And I'm proud to say that, that I was actually a client of his when I had my own practice for a little bit under a year. And I fired him for the best reason possible is that I was generating so much business. I could not handle all of it. I had to turn it off basically. And I give Rod a lot of credit for that as well as another coach sort of earlier in my career. 
And I can't think of a better endorsement th than that, and it happens to be true. But Rod is a founder of Burkert Valuation Advisors, a business valuation and litigation support firm. His assignments focus primarily on income, gift, and estate matters, specializing in closely held companies and private investment partnerships. He also provides report review and project consulting services to assist attorneys and other practitioners with their engagements. Between 1996 and 2005, Rod was a member of and a lead instructor for the National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts, just rolls off the tongue, Consultants Training Institute. Missing the classroom environment, he rejoined the NACVA's teaching circuit in 2011, championing the subject of report writing, another topic near and dear to my heart. He is a recipient of various instructor awards, including the Circle of Light and Instructor of the Year. He's a past chairman of NACVA's Executive Advisory Board and Education Board and has been named one of NACVA's outstanding members. He is also a regular contributing author to Business Valuation Update, The Value Examiner, and Financial Valuation and Litigation Expert. If you're not in valuation, you don't know what those are, but those are based on the Sports Illustrated of the valuation world, the New York Times of the valuation world. Um, Rod is leveraging social media to build a mobile valuation consulting practice, allowing him to travel full-time in an RV throughout the United States and Canada with his wife, Amy, and their two dogs. And uh, Rod, thank you for taking time off the road to talk to us today. Hey, thanks, Mike, for having me. I appreciate it. I, I Gosh, until you read my bio, um, I didn't realize how much I've done, but... It sure sounds like a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know, as I tell people, one of the benefits I see for myself having gray in my beard and two arthritic ankles is at least when you look behind in the rear of your mirror, there's, a, there's some interesting stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you started out, I think, as did I, as, as a practitioner getting out, getting out the work. You know, why did you decide that you're going to develop, if you will, this this persona or this this new vocation of practice development training? Well, you know, one of the things that you said in the beginning kind of struck me as pretty close to home is back in the day when I started doing valuations, if someone said to me, describe your ideal day, I would have said, sitting in front of a computer, building an Excel model to help a client accomplish some, you know, or solve a valuation problem. So I was very much the nerd sitting in front of a computer as well, but I had my own practice and I had to bring in work in order to build those kinds of models. And so, you know, I'm kind of an outgoing person. I don't mind getting out there. And I actually found that the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it. And then I turned 60. So I'm 63 now. But when I turn 60, I'm thinking my health is really good. I'm having a great time. I'm not thinking about retiring. I've got a long road ahead of me. And I have an opportunity really to embark on a second career. And for me, that second career piggybacked on what I know and what I do best, which is doing business valuation work. But instead of doing the work, I'm actually, as you said, helping people get the work. Because there is a lot of information out there that's of a very technical nature. It, it tells us how to do the work, but nobody tells us how to get the work. And the last piece of why I'm doing what I'm doing, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, two days ago, 
my wife and I officially crossed 9.5 years that we have lived full-time in our RV, traveling throughout the United States and Canada with our two dogs. There's no home. There's no storage facility. Everything is in the RV. And I want to give that RV equivalent experience to other people in our profession. So I don't expect everybody to think that they're going to pull up stakes and, and live in an RV like Amy and I do. But rhetorically speaking, Michael, what is your RV equivalent experience? What is it that you would like to do in tandem or in parallel with the business valuation work that you do? And one of my, you know, kind of one of my success stories is a client that I'm working with. And she really, you know, had a previous life as a painter and an artist. And we've restructured her practice to give that life back to her again. So that's why I'm doing this. Okay. So, so yeah. And, and obviously you're helping a lot of, a lot of people with it. So, um, uh, before we go, I'm going to, I'm going to define a term because, uh, what, what we're going to be talking about here is, is business valuation. Cause that just happens to be my world. But I want to emphasize that, that Rod also helps people that are in the forensic and litigation, uh, services area, which generally means expert witnesses. And that, that's not an area in which I play. I'm on record saying that's not my strength to put it mildly. But, but a lot of what Rod does is, is works with professionals like that as well. So when I say business valuation, because I don't want to say that entire mouthful each and every single time, just imagine to yourself out in the audience that he's, we're also talking about forensic and litigation services. Um, so with that in mind, that the, the, the question then is, you know, can anyone, can anyone do this? Can literally anyone who decides that, you know, for whatever reason, for career development or, for survival because they got to eat and they've got this, this practice. Can anyone develop a business valuation practice? Um, I think to an extent, the answer to that question is, is yes, with a huge, but caveat. And that caveat is simply this, is that you have to be willing to keep showing up um, to try new things and always keep moving forward. And I think that's the problem with many people in our profession. They don't have that dedication to the consistency and persistency that's required for the marketing that you need to build a practice. So one of my coaching clients coined a really cool term. He's been accused by his friends um, and colleagues of dolphin marketing. And what is dolphin marketing? Well, dolphin marketing is when you need work um, because everything in the pipeline is done. You come up from air for air. You breach out of the water. You grab a few new clients, and then you disappear underwater, and nobody hears from you again until you need more work. That's dolphin marketing. Um, anyone in our industry who we might call it industry titan, the seasoned professional, will tell you that you need to be out there marketing, if not every day, at least every week. And I think, given some of the mentality in our profession, we don't want to do that. We're un we convince ourselves, to me, <clears throat> we convince ourselves, I'm a person that was never good in math. And I had convinced myself that I would never be good in math um, 
when actually it's a learned skill like anything else that we do. You can learn to be good in math and you can learn to be good to be good in marketing and practice development if you don't talk yourself out of it. You know, what you talk about resonates with me. Another a podcast to which I listen fairly frequently is the uh, the Rosen Institute. You might have heard of it. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, Lee Rosen is very much a kindred spirit of yours, except he goes global. Um, and, and one of the things he says is that almost any marketing activity you do will be successful as long as you stick with it and you're consistent. And, and yes, I agree with that. And related to Michael, that, Michael, you have to like it. I mean, one of the things is, you know, what works for others may not work for you. And what works for you may not work for others. But the important thing is to play to your strengths. I would never advise a coaching client that they need to be out there speaking constantly if they didn't really like speaking or writing or doing videos or anything like that. You have to pick a marketing skill that you are halfway good at so that you can learn to get better and enjoy doing or else you won't stick with it. And that goes back to being consistent and persistent. So so why isn't just being a great technician good enough? I mean, the, 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 the little voice in our head that says the world in America is a meritocracy says, you know, tell us, and maybe this is a rationalization that, you know, the marketing and sales is all just fluff, but I'm a, I'm a, a professional of substance and I'm really good at, at the business valuation, et cetera, world. You know, why, why is that not good enough? Yeah, I mean, I used to think being a technician would be good enough. Um, and then I read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That book was written back in the 1930s. So 80-some years ago, Dale Carnegie had this observation about the finance, about the success of the people that he was coaching. And he says, basically, it's my observation that if you look at anyone who has achieved some level of financial success, 15% of that success is due to technical skills, and 85% of it would be due to what we would call today people engineering skills, the soft skills like good listening, having empathy, being patient. You know, that has, I think many times we gravitate to somebody who can capture our imagination and tell us what they can do for us without actually supplying the mathematical solution for what they can do for us. Now, uh, you know, sales for people who don't, don't do it. And for me, I, I, I surprisingly found to my, uh, to my astonishment really that I, I get a big endorphin rush from it, but not everybody does. Uh, and some people, I, I think a lot of people still look at sales with a certain amount of apprehension, even dread, and I'm sure it comes across people's minds, you know, maybe I could just hire a salesperson or maybe partner up with a salesperson. Is that a, is that a model that could work for a small firm or is, is that just sort of putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound? Well, there are firms out there, even in our business valuation space, um, that have a team of 
salespeople only. They do not do valuation or forensic accounting or litigation services work at all. They go out and their job is to sell the work. And they have built an incredibly successful uh, practice. I think they have five or six offices. They've been around for like 80 years. Um, and they have used that model to some success. Rhetorically speaking, though, if you're the cl- if you're the prospect at that point because you haven't signed on, um, this isn't a widget that we're selling. We're selling a solution to an acute problem. It could be, you know, the death of a of a family member, and that and their interest in the business needs to be valued for estate tax purposes. It could be the sale of your business, something that you've built over the course of your lifetime. And now it represents the largest asset that you own. When it comes to interviewing somebody that's going to help you solve that problem, do you want to meet somebody who's selling the solution or somebody who is going to be preparing the solution? So, you know, I'm not saying that the sales model or you wanting to hire somebody to outsource the sales piece of, of your practice development won't work. But I think where we really fail most often is the people that do the work that we do, we don't put ourselves in the shoes of the client. And how would we feel if we were going to have our problems solved by a salesperson as opposed to a person that's going to actually do the work? You go to a doctor, you know, the, you know, there's no salesman selling you the procedure that you need to have performed. There is the doctor that's telling you the what, the why, and the how that this procedure needs to be performed. And I think with a professional service like ours, to me, prospects and clients want to meet with the person that's going to be doing the work, not the person that's just going to be selling the work. Now, one of the... um one of the objections I'm sure you face, and I certainly see, with somebody who is confronted with the need to develop a business development mentality, mentality and business development practice, if you will, is a, a lack of time. Yeah, you know, I don't have don't have time to sell. I don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, you know, I'm curious. You know, I, I would imagine that well, I know this for a fact because I've been a client of yours. Is that you know, it's not a free ride to kind of jump on board the Rod Burker train and become a coaching client, is it? I mean, there's a there's a time commitment, and and not just inside of school, if you will, but outside as well to to prepare and build those skills and build those those uh, business development muscles, isn't there? There is, and I think a big factor in all of this and what you said, Michael, is really how six. You know, first of all, well. How, how successful of a practice do you want? What does success mean to you? Because there are some people, you and I both know them, that have a successful practice simply by standing, sitting in their office and aggressively waiting for the phone to ring. That's a term that I used in coaching with you. And they're perfectly happy with that. You know, that they'll never make you know, high six figures doing that, or it would be unusual to think that they could. But if they're making a low six figure, you know, billing revenue, and however you want to look at it, that may be all they need. And they're not going to invest time with a coach like me. 
And on the other hand, you know, there are people who want more for different reasons. And I'm not just necessarily saying more income. I'm saying more time, more money, more freedom. You have to put some systems in place to realize those things. And that's what, the, that's what I would like to think that my coaching helps people do. Not just more money, but more money with more time and more freedom to use that money to, ha- again, have that RV equivalent experience. And what is a time investment required by a coaching client of yours, let's say in a given week? You know, how, how many hours should they inspe- expect to invest in their education that's being led by you? I would say that there's a ramp up, and in the beginning, it may be a few hours of a, a week tailoring down. I mean, there's two things, if you can bear with me here, Michael. Number one is, you know, it depends on when you come to me, how much authority, how much awareness that you have, because there are people in the profession that don't do marketing per se. Um, they're not out there networking like we think that they might do. Their networking is speaking and writing. Um, and so for them, they're not investing any time in marketing, again, per se. They're just doing what they've been, what they like to do, which is speaking and writing. The other part of, of what this is, of what I teach, um, is something that you should be doing anyhow to build your practice. Let me give you a great example. I'm at a speaking event. Someone says to me, I'm a tax person. I would love to get evaluation practice up and running, and I just don't, but I just don't have the time. And I was kind of blunt, you know, and that's my style. And I, my first question out of my mouth was, how much television do you watch a week? And he was all proud of the fact that he was a Cubs fan and that during baseball season, he's watching every game somehow, streaming, on television, whatever. And I said, so to me, an average baseball game is like three hours a week, uh, three hours a game. And you're watching multiple games a week, and now you want to tell me that you don't have time for marketing. So, you know, that enters into it as well, meaning how badly do you want this? Do you just want to gripe about your situation or do you actually want to take time from other activities that really don't contribute any value um, to to get you to where you say you want to end up and invest it in coaching time and learning how to market and build a practice? I've I remember reading that story. You've put it on your, uh, your, you put it on your mailings at least once and, and uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it is a great story. And, you know, Television is one of these stealth, stealth sort of time sucks too. Um, you don't you don't realize how much time has gone until you. Wa- Sometimes you do wake up, but you look up and you say, "Oh my my gosh, my whole evening is gone." I could have written I could have written an entire article in the four hours that I just spent watching that TV. Right. So, and if I can say one of the last things, one of the things that I teach people is how to automate certain processes. Now. I don't have a sales system or anything like that, but given what I know, given what I can teach people about platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn, there's a way to automate your connection requests. There's a a way to automate your scripts and use conversations on LinkedIn Messenger or Facebook Messenger to make it seem like you're actually having a conversation 
until you get to the point where you find out that the person really does want to buy from you whatever they're buying, and you take that conversation offline and have and, and call them, you know, reach out and phone and and have them you know, have that real discussion. But there's a lot of automation that can go on at the front end that you don't have to be sitting at your computer to do or, you know, it happens for you. You got you to invest the time to set the system up. But man, once it's running, it really works. So what about the, the duration of an optimal coaching relationship? And I'm, I'm supposing something that may not be true. So I'm, I'm likely going to learn something but contrast with, say, a therapist where uh, – and I think part of what you do is therapy, uh, good therapy. But uh, there's some people that have lifelong relationships or certainly years or decades-long relationships with therapists. Is there ever a point in a coaching program such as the one that you run where where your your clients graduate? Or is this something that you think that it's a, it's a long-term – maybe ideally a semi-permanent commitment to that relationship? Yeah. Good question. And and tongue-in-cheek, I think you stay with a coach as long as the return on investment is greater than or equal to the investment. And I think what really pivots people here is that our average engagement could be anywhere from you know, hey, at the really low end, if you're competing on the basis of price, maybe you're doing work for $5,000. But our engagements could easily go up to dollars, dollars $50,000, $100,000 if you're doing litigation support work and it's a big case. I mean, you know, that happens. So if I can teach you something that helps you get those kinds of – that kind of casework at those kinds of fees – and let's say my coaching is $10,000 in a, for an entire year, or that's what it comes out to, because it's close to that. But I'm helping you get three, four, five engagements at a multiple of ten or fifteen or $20,000 that you would not have otherwise gotten as a result of the coaching. Why wouldn't you stick with me? Or any other coach, for that matter, that can help you develop that kind of a return on your investment. Well, okay. So, yeah, so there you go. So, and I'd like to drill down to that a little bit because we've talked about the, about the skill set that you help your clients acquire. Um, and that's a big part of what you're, what you're offering. But my sense also is that for some people, you're also just offering an accountability partner so that people do in fact stay engaged, they stay motivated, they stay on task. Is, is that, a is that a fair characterization, and B, if if you had to guess, you know, in many cases, is that accountability contribution of equal, even of equal value to the technique and skills contribution that you make? Yeah, it's interesting that you put it that way, Michael. Because if you think about it, we know we know what we need to do to be successful. Because what it takes to be a success in an industry like ours hasn't changed in generations. Quite frankly, it hasn't changed in centuries. You get known for what you know by a combination of speaking and writing and perhaps in this day and age, video or podcasting. But so, so you know what you should be doing. 
the one of the big reasons people come to me is that accountability because they know that we're going to have twice monthly meetings and I'm going to ask them what progress that they've made towards the goals that they set for themselves to have the practice that they say that they want to have. So accountability is a big thing. You know, it's not like I can't teach you some things about, for example, something has come out in the last couple of weeks that has really changed the game about how people should be using LinkedIn. I can teach you that, but it doesn't take away from the fact that you know you should be using LinkedIn in some way, shape, or form to help build your practice. Now, are you going to do it? Are you going to set aside 10 or 15 minutes every morning and every afternoon to use it? Well, that's the that's where accountability comes in because you know as a coaching client, you're going to have to report back to me about what you did and didn't do in the last two weeks. So you're a big proponent of, of your clients making themselves visible experts, and it's important to Note, there are other marketing opportunities or you know, channels available if you choose to, um, but, but you're very much on the visible expert train. Why, why exactly is that as opposed to other potential marketing channels or approaches? A great question, and I think the answer is simple. If you put yourself if – if we put ourselves in the client's shoes, when we have a problem, we want a visible expert to solve it. I mean, if there's something going on in your family, in your household, in your home, and it needs to be, and by that it could be in a medical emergency all the way down to a plumbing emergency, do you want to call somebody that nobody has never heard of to solve your problem? Or do you want to call somebody that you know of or that your friends can highly recommend because they know that that person can successfully solve your problem? And I think we would agree with the latter. I mean, we want somebody who has solved our problem multiple times successfully. And the way you do that is to have, first of all, you have to have the skills and knowledge. So you have to be an expert. You have to have expertise. But no one's going to know about your expertise or your authority or what you're known for if you don't get out there. Because we need to be where the buyers of our services are when they need us. And so if you're not out there constantly priming the pump with speaking engagements, writing articles, whatever, again, whatever is your strength, doing videos, how's anybody going to know to call you? Well, yeah, that that's true. And, and of course, there's a presupposition, and I think an important one, that you know, you don't want to be a commodity. One one thing you could do is the alternative is you could adopt sort of a yellow pages model. Um, put yourself in in directories, and believe it or not, I actually do occasionally get an email from appraisers dot org. Uh, never landed a client or even came close, but at any rate, um, and you can sort of go that route. But you know, by making yourself a visible expert, you are you are elevating yourself and and making yourself, I think, a much more obvious fit to solve that problem too, right? So exactly. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the, the, the nature of the coaching relationship itself. Um, somebody is, is looking for you know, a coach like you, and they may have a view as to what an outcome, desirable outcome would be. Can you talk about what are some 
what are realistic expectations of a coaching relationship? And I'll, I'll just have you talk about you because I don't want you to speak for all other coaches. But what are realistic expectations of a, of a relationship with you? And maybe what might be some unrealistic expectations uh, somebody might have uh, in a relationship with you? Sure. Uh, you've heard the expression, you can lead a horse to water, right? And I think the uh, an example of an unrealistic expectation in a coaching relationship is that me imparting knowledge to you is going to solve your problem because information is dramatically different than implementation. And the coaching client in any field is going to have to take the information from the coach and implement it. So I can give you the, you know, what you need to do. I can tell you why it's important that you do that. And as a coaching client, I will, I will even show you how to go about doing it. So I will give you the what, the why, and the how. But if you don't do anything with it, if you don't do the work, if you don't implement it, your situation's not going to change. You, you just may, you may learn more, you may be more knowledgeable, but if you don't do anything, nothing's going to change. If you don't get out there on LinkedIn, if you don't get out there and write, if you don't get out there and speak, even though, again, you know these are the things you should be doing, nothing's going to change. And quite frankly, Michael, when I see that happening in a coaching relationship, I will terminate the relationship because I'm not I don't want to take people's money. If I see that they're not implementing, we have a come to Jesus conversation, um, and I give them a little bit of time after that. And if they're not working it, then I, you know, I'm not helping them. Yeah, and and look, I, I think to be perfectly candid too, it's a it's a self defense mechanism for you as well. And I know how you coach in groups, so if a person is not engaging, it means they're not contributing to the other people who are sort of in your study group, if you will. And, and, and also, and I've fired clients for, for similar things where, you know, I don't want a client paying me, not taking my advice, have it not work out and then run around telling everybody what a moron I am because they didn't take my advice. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, I mean, there's, there is something in your reputation that you want to preserve out of all of this too. I, I think absolutely. And, you know, what you talk about reminds me of, uh, a running joke my wife and I have. So years and years ago, I used to be a, a, a tournament, uh, a tournament chess player. And um, one thing that my wife could always count on was whenever I came home from a tournament, I would come home with at least three chess books. And they look great, and they make you sound so smart. But there's a problem with chess books, and this is this is the spoiler alert: they're really boring to read. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Right. I just, they're just not, they're just, they're just not a page turner. Even though I, I was in my, in my day a pretty strong player, they were not boring. They looked great on the shelf. And, you know, at some point I had to stop, stop myself from buying them because magically, owning the books did not magically create this, this energy field that made me a stronger chess player. They just took up space on my bookshelf and, uh, um, made free space in my bank account. God. <laughs> Again, the difference between information and implementation. So, you know, one issue practices have, and, and I face this in, in mine, um, not urgently, but it's something I think about a lot, is is training 
kind of the next generation. You know, many practices, as you know, sort of have a patriarch at the top of the practice, right? It could be Chris Mercer, who I know you have a good relationship. It could be Shannon Pratt. It could be Jim Hitchner. Um, and, and then, you know, they have, they have people that uh, are, are working for them and are professionals in their own right. And, you know, all those, all those people know what it takes to build a successful and valuable firm that if it's going to have value, it better not be entirely dependent on one, one person doing all the rainmaking. Do you think there's a role for coaching in some capacity to help address the problem or the challenge of raising the next generation of visible experts? And if so, do you have any idea of what that may look like? Yes and yes. Um, I think, you know, to get to the heart of your question, it sounds like, well, is there a problem training the next generation? And and I think, you know, you've got to look at it from the origin uh, of marketing. I mean, again, we came into this profession, Michael, many, many years ago where there was no expectation that we needed to market. We were going to be those technicians and succeed solely on that basis. And then, you know, things got tough, started to realize that if we really did want to get anywhere, we needed to do marketing. Um, just as a quick aside, I had a managing partner in an accounting firm come to me when I was running a valuation practice in an accounting firm comes into my office one day and says, damn it, I can, you know, the, the problem that I'm having is I can always find people to do the work. You can't find people who can get the work. And so I suddenly realized that was like a big aha moment for me that if I wanted to get anywhere, I needed to get the work. And so begrudgingly, my generation, again, I said I was 63 at the top of the podcast, you know, I happen to be what I consider a baby boomer trapped in a millennial body. Um, or I'm a millennial, I'm sorry, I'm a millennial trapped in a baby boomer body the other way around. But we begrudgingly learn these things that we have to do to bring in more work. We have to network. We have to have lunches and breakfasts and coffees with attorneys. We have to do it this way. And that patriarch at the top of the firm is saying to the younger generation, this is how you have to do it. And it doesn't work that way because, you know, generations change. And, you know, the patriarch grew up with a certain generation of colleagues and referral sources for which networking events, for example, worked for them. But, you know, to I hate to even say the millennial generation because it sounds like we're maligning them, but I don't mean to. Um, they're growing up with a, gener a cohort of similar-minded people who saw the damage of being away from your family all the time create. So going out and networking every night of the week is not something that you're going to convince a millennial is the right thing to do. They've grown up with all sorts of phone apps, you know, and texting, and, and that is how they communicate with each other. And these millennials... If they're professional service providers, they're going to get work from attorney and CPA referral sources who are their own age, who grew up with the same technology, and have the same shared experience of wanting to be with family and wanting to do a good job. So I think when there's a breakdown, 
between trying to train the younger generation. It's because we've already approached the relationship that these people are lazy and they spend too much time on their phones and they don't want to get out there. And we make them bad and wrong because we want them to do it our way. Yeah, and darn it, we want them to pay the same horrible price we had to pay, <laughs> regardless exactly. of how much makes I mean, sense it makes. Think about it the other way around. What if the patriarchal generation grew up with texting as a way to bring in new work? But the younger generation didn't like that. They don't like texting. They want to have real conversations with people. They want to go out and meet them in person. They want to go to networking events. Would we be, would the, we, the older generation, be yelling at millennials if they didn't want to stop texting to get business and, and instead wanted to go out and do networking events? Would we be yelling at them because they want to do networking and not rely on something more technology-related? Yeah, and yeah, and I, and I see that I see that in my practice because, as you know, I do a lot of work in the tech space. So my my demographic tends to skew a little bit younger, and I've actually not met about half of my clients in person. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Even if I did a site visit, I you know, I wouldn't even see servers anymore. I would see a bunch of MacBooks and iPads and a couple of conference rooms. If that, they might even be in a co working space, but. You know, they'll respond to a text. They'll respond to a tweet. I can reach them through Instagram. And, and you know, as you have often said, you know, in, in a way, that millennial generation has it right because if you think about the investment you have to make, meeting one person at a time, breakfast, lunch, drinks, whatever it is, right, in, in the time you spend doing that over the course of a month, you could have reached 100,000 people <laughs> over social media. Several times. You know, several times over. That's exactly right. And, you know, to try and say, hey, we don't care so much. What we're really saying as the patriarch, we don't care about the, the results as much as we care about your methodology. Right. And I think that's wrong. Yeah, clearly wrong, right? Then it's just, that's, not a, that's, that's no longer a business solution. That's a, that's a psychological issue. So again, you, like you said, we want those people to pay the same price that we had to. That's right. So you know, you obviously coach this business valuation forensic area. I think exclusively. Do these principles? Could these principles? This, this again. Could these principles apply in other industries? Law, digital marketing, management consulting. You know, could they be applicable anywhere, or are they? they strictly useful only in, in the field that we've chosen? I think, I think that what I do is applicable to other fields, but as you, you know, you know, from working with me, I'm a big fan of niching. So I've got this, you know, minimum viable audience of business appraisers. So I would be violating my own philosophy of niching if I tried to go out and proselytize about how to develop an accounting practice or a law practice. Um, I just, I'm not saying it couldn't work, but I don't think I'd have any authority or credibility because I've never built an accounting practice or I've never built a law practice. But what I have built a couple of times over different iterations is a business valuation practice. Um, 
you know, I know what my clients are up against. I know how things are changing because I still run a traditional valuation practice. And I think it gives me the authority and credibility to do and to talk about um, what I do for similarly situated professionals. I'd have no idea. You know, I wouldn't really know where an accountant is coming from. I mean, I sort of would, but you get what I'm trying oh, sure. to say. Sure. And, 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 and to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you should diversify, but – but somebody who might, you know, some it is most likely that the, the vast majority of people listening to this uh, discussion today have nothing to do or have no interest in the business valuation uh, industry or profession. But they may be wondering, you know, if I could find a, a coach with a similar approach in my industry, would that be viable? And, you know, my own answer is it probably would. It's just a matter of finding the right person who is similarly niched that, that understands kind of the, the industry specific realities that, that have to intersect with the techniques. Number one, I would agree with what you said. And number two, I would also like to point out that, you know, I think you'd be really hard pressed, Mike, to identify anyone that has achieved any level of the success in finance, in industry, in sports, any any field of endeavor without a coach or a mentor. You know, I, I you know, people say, Well, why do I need a coach? And I'm like, Hey, did you ever watch a basketball game? Yeah. What's the objective of the game? Score more points than the other team. Do you think the five players out on the court know that that's what the objective is? Yes. Well then why do those five players need a coach? Why don't they just go out and score more points than their opponent? They know what they should they have to do. They don't need a coach, right? And then there's a big pause. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think the I think the reputation of the professional coach has evolved and elevated significantly certainly in the last 10 years and I think in particular in the last 4 or 5. And and I think it's I think it's elevated Partially because I think coaches have become better and the, the coaches themselves are people that are accomplished as opposed to 10 years ago. I, I seem to encounter a lot of coaches that weren't very successful in the actual field. So as the, you know, those who can't do teach kind of thing. But I think also there's a recognition that, you know, particularly in business development, and I know you don't like the word sales. So I'm trying to avoid it, but in business development, you know, we don't teach that anymore. And it used to be. You're a little older than I am, but you know, it, it certainly in the, in the baby boomer generation, in most professional services firms of, of any size, and even the smaller ones, there was a notion that, that the senior people would impart their wisdom, their knowledge, and would participate in the management and development of that next generation of business developers. Now what I see is just everyone for themselves. They got to meet their billable hours goals. I think to a certain extent, they're fearful the younger generation will come and take their jobs. Uh, they're certainly not rewarded for developing new talent as much as most firms kind of, kind of give lip service to that. And, and, and that, that confluence has created, I think, a, an opportunity for people like you to fill a, a very real vacuum that I think has occurred and has generally been harmful to most professional services industries. Yeah, I, Yes. I, I mean, you're preaching to the choir, and I know this sounds self-serving, but I think a lot of people might be more willing to embrace a coach, but I think they look at it as a cost instead of an investment. 
And that goes back to, well, how long should I stay in the coaching relationship? Well, as long as, you know, you're getting a return on your investment, it's, it's not a sunk cost. Um, if you're not getting a return on investment, you should, you know, find another coach or quit, you know, quit your existing coach, find another coach. But, you know, investing in your own personal development, I, I don't know where else you should spend your money first. But if not spending it on or not investing it in your own personal growth. I think there's plenty of literature out there that's, that is very clear that one of the best investments anybody can ever make is in themselves, right? And certainly one of the best bets you can make is on yourself. Correct. So uh, we're winding down here, and I want to I get you back to your, your, your beautiful weather and your, and your scenery. Um, but I have two more questions I'd like, to, I'd like to ask. One is, can you think about kind of one of your favorite coaching success stories and tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. And actually I'm going to, you know, a co- more than one comes to mind, but let me tell you the one that had the most impact that I feel like I've had the most impact on somebody. My biggest success story was somebody who I coached out of business valuation. Because one of the things that goes back to, well, why don't we like marketing? We realized for this person, for this individual, that she did not really like – the reason she didn't really want to do marketing is because she really didn't like business valuations Hmm. and actually coached her out of the business valuation world. She went to work for her husband's business and is now focusing on something that she realized that she really wanted to do, which was to become a writer. And so she's, you know, starting out selling um, detective stories on Amazon. And I'd like, you know, from a personal standpoint, from my viewpoint, that is like my most successful story. Um, From another client's perspective, you know, I have uh, an older client, you know, late 60s, early 70s who came to me really drained. I mean, emotionally drained of the years of just doing one project after another. And, you know, we've turned things around. We've tried to get away from one-to-one client service. He's created a one-to-many product that he's selling, you know, creating one time, selling to his industry niche. And I don't want to say what it is, um, what his niche is, but it's webinar-related. And he's making almost as much money from a one-to-many product, which takes him a couple of days a month to create, as he was going out there trying to sell and do one-to-one client service engagements. And he's got a whole new, you know, he feels totally reinvigorated about his practice and the possibilities for his practice. And and I I do think those are very important outcomes. You know, and, and that first one, I have a similar one. As you know, I do office hours uh, a few times a month. I think it's such a great idea. Let me. I'm sorry, Michael, to interrupt you, but you know, everybody thinks it's got to be something so secret, saucy. There's a magic bullet, secret potion, silver bullet that you know is the answer to marketing. And the simple things that I see you do on LinkedIn, creating the hard candy is an example. Letting letting it be known that you're going to be at a restaurant for a certain time and anybody who shows up during that time, uh, you're going to help them. 
I think you know sometimes we get so lost in the in the for, in the trees that we don't see the forest, and that it's the simple things that if we did consistently and persistently, we wouldn't even consider it marketing. We wouldn't hate to do it because we think it's. Do you hate going to lunch and having those open office hours? I don't think so. No, no. You take one look at my waistline, you know I do not hate going to lunch and having those <laughs> office hours. But uh, you know, one of my favorite stories of office hours was I would cons- I call a successful failure like Apollo 13. I had office hours, and this is about eight nine years ago. And a guy showed up, ran his pitch, his venture pitch by me, and he said, "What do you think?" I said, "I think this thing is a lot of holes, and I think that you are risking yours and your family's finances on a very dubious proposition, and it's most likely going to fail." And he was so upset that. He got up, walked away, stick, stuck me with his bill, <laughs> um, and, and called me a couple of names on the way out. He was not happy. Six months later, I received a handwritten note from him thanking me for the fact that I told him something that his friends and family just didn't have the heart to do and um, uh, for having the courage to kind of tell him that he, that he needed to do that. And uh, he sent me a hundred dollar gift card, hoping that I was going to cover his tab, which it more than it more than did. But you know, that was somebody I helped by getting him out of something that just was not going to be successful. So um, there's no nothing wrong with that. All right, so uh, I, I'm already going over time for, for both of us, but I want to make sure I get this last one in, and that is, um, how can people contact you to learn more about? about business development coaching, and maybe if you're not the right person because they're not in, in business valuation, maybe elsewhere, um, you know, how, how can they reach out to you? Well, I, I think just saying it over the phone, probably the easiest way is just, you know, if you know how to spell my name, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm there a lot. Um, that is my social media platform of choice. And so you can message me on LinkedIn. Um, I have a website that outlines um, pretty much who I am and what I do, and that website URL is rodburkert.com. And my email address piggybacks off of that. You can email me at rod at rodburkert.com. All right. Well, thanks very much for that. And uh, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Rod Burkert, B-U-R-K-E-R-T, so you know how to spell it so much, for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 